welcome to Prize Fighting Kangaroo. I'm Amy. And I'm Ashley. And we're here to talk about movies, uh, cinema, culture, things to do with films. Uh, Prize Fighting Kangaroo uh, is hosted by Yab Yum Music and Arts. And you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp, the Yab Yum website, and uh, just by doing a simple search, if all of those things are too complicated for you. Our theme song is called I Found a Knife by dark country band The Wilt Family. And also, if you ever wanted to see us in person and maybe throw things at us, we do trivia every month at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix, the last Tuesday of every month, Trivia Dome. Yeah, come compete for prizes and bragging rights. All right, now that we got the shameless plugging out of the way, uh, let's talk about today's episode. One thing we like to kind of talk about in our spare time is a question of what does cinema do that other art forms can? And there's a particular story trope that comes up time and time again in the movies of people like Hitchcock, uh, David Lynch, even John Woo. And that's a story of multiple identities of characters who have to pretend to be other people or have to live multiple lives. And to start off by exploring this theme on today's show, I want to bring up one of the all-time great 90s films. Yes, I know what you're thinking, and it's exactly that. We're talking about Face Off, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Nicolas Cage, his, John Travolta. His finest hour. <laughs> like, it, it actually might be. It really is. I mean, it's kind of – I hesitate to say bad acting because I don't think the acting in Face Off is bad. But I think, like, if you want to, like, approach acting from, like, a, like a Shatnerian lens, like, I think, like, the Face Off is, like, the apex of that style of acting. <laughs> like, you, like, you cannot overact – like, you can't overact the overacting that Nicolas Cage does in that movie. Like, it's so – over the top that you see that John Travolta is trying to match him in the crazy department and he can't quite get there. No, I don't know if anybody could quite get there. It's like you can feel it with it's like sensory overload with the uh, what everything he's giving to make that that character come to life. It's like electric. Oh, totally. But what I love about that film too is that it, it bounces all these different ideas where like you have the, you have like the body horror of like the whole surgery sequence of you know, somebody waking up and realizing that you have the face of your enemy on you. Yeah. But also like the like that weird like sex thing too where you're like, okay, this guy is now in the home of his enemy and he's like macking on the wife and also kind of hitting on the daughter. And it's just really like it, like it really plays with the creepy implications of its idea. Yeah. Like how do you um, like how do you justify that within yourself? To, you know, it's one thing if you if you have a job and we'll, you know, uh, I mean, there's a goal in all these movies. Uh, if the goal doesn't involve, you know, I mean, you have to play a part to some degree. But how do you resolve that in yourself uh, to be able to not only do what you have to do, but then you're, you're taking advantage. And then, therefore, you're kind of like a... You're disturbing, you're disrupting your own goal by taking it to different levels, like you said, like flirting with a daughter or taking it past. So at what point are you willing to give up your your mission? You know, you could maybe change your face, but you still can't change that uh, inherent evil that's in you. Exactly. Yeah. It took me a long time to get to that point, but yeah, <laughs> that's where I was going. Well, what I like about it, too, is like in, in so many of these like cop versus criminal movies, especially in the John Woo films, there's always this idea of like mutual respect where it's like, oh, you're my enemy, but I respect you. Right. And what I love about Face Off is there isn't that. No. These two guys just hate the fuck out of each other. <laughs> like they're so hateful and like disgusted by each other. And like, that what gives the film such replay value. You can see these guys want nothing more than just murder each other. Yeah. I think that um, that hate respect thing works really good in like a like a Punisher or a comic story because it's multi-episodic. So, you know, you have a reason to keep going. You know, you'll still, we'll meet again kind of thing, you know. Totally. Uh, but in this, it, it's just a one and done. So there's no time. That movie, is it moves fast. It's, you know, it's got all the great John Woo ballet. I like to call them components. <laughs> uh, 
and it's just it goes to the end so it just drives to the end with on that rage but it doesn't uh it it doesn't have to have that component in because it's just gonna blow up in a fiery end <laughs> of course and it is i think i've been probably like his best american film with like mission impossible 2 probably being the worst yeah oh yeah like, like those are the two extremes of the scale yeah, face off. I can watch over and over. Oh God, yeah, it's it's just wonderful. And have. <laughs> <laughs> but what about you? Like when, when you think of like double agent films or films where where somebody has to like busy be in two lives at once, like what's a film that pops up to your mind, Amy? So how about The Departed? I think Ooh, we talked yes. about that a little bit, but there are, I believe, at least well, there are several uh, peripheral characters, but let's just take the main characters uh, played by. Jack Nicholson, Matt Damon, and uh, Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, for all those who aren't on that uh, <laughs> familiar basis like me, uh, they are all playing a double role in that movie. So you you know what's going on, but you are there's a little bit of suspe- suspense, but there's so much tension uh, watching everybody try to hold on. Oh, totally. To their positions um, without revealing themselves to one another in the movie and having to to continuously interact with each other. Well, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, like how the film sets up Damon and Caprio's contrasts, where you see like Damon kind of thriving in his double role, mostly, where DiCaprio, who's kind of, you know, basically the good guy in the picture, you see him, but it's like the the weight of having to live that life is just crushing him. Yeah, he's falling apart a lot. And he's kind of getting things done and figuring things out, but it's kind of nice to see. And I think he is, uh, well, you know, he's seeing the therapist in that movie who also happens to be the girlfriend of the Matt Damon character. So, you know, add another layer of complexity to the whole situation. but so you get to see him in that therapeutic setting uh, to really, you know, show like how just how under stress he is. And and he is not, you know, he is not cut out for that type of work. And he is probably had like maybe a tougher upbringing than the Matt Damon character. Uh, so you would think inherently he would be able to handle more, but he yeah. is actually much less ruthless and and more sensitive which makes sense too because if you look at their, like their economic backgrounds where it's like you have the one guy who already comes from a position of privilege who just wants to kind of make a contribution and we have the demon character who comes from nothing who do anything to get to the, the, a position of respectability and comfort so that ruthlessness makes sense for that character because he knows what the alternative is Right. And then you have the Jack Nicholson character who's just being whatever anyone wants him to be <laughs> for his own gain. So, you know, he's working undercover. He's working. He is a criminal. Uh, and you kind of find out that he has no real allegiance to anybody but himself. Oh, totally. Uh, and he plays it masterfully. I honestly have to tell you, like, I love the movie and I didn't expect to because and I love Jack, but I thought it was going to be. And some of it was, but a little cliche Jack. Uh, and there's only so much Jack Jack can take out of Jack. Oh, totally. <laughs> but it, he made it really work. I mean, he was, you know, maniacal oh, and totally. devious and, uh, you know, creepily charming at the right <laughs> times. But, uh, you know, you kind of, you got to see that, uh, you know, here's a person that is just so hedonistic. Uh you know that it doesn't really matter what's what's going on. Well, totally. And and, like, and the relationship he has with Damon is interesting too, because like you see the manipulation at work where he kind of plays a father figure for him at times, but you can tell that it's bullshit. That he just knows like that's just the right way to push this guy's button. That's what he needs, the Matt Damon. Yeah. 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 I think it, it's when you really step outside of it, it's, it's almost like a, it's almost fun to watch in some ways, and it's and it's tense. I guess that's typical Scorsese in some ways though totally uh but when you step out of it and look at it like this then you can really see like you know just how much that that one dynamic just threads a layer of tension through the whole thing and you're wondering you know when's when's this gonna house of cards gonna you know just crumble (laughs) crumble it does and it does yeah (laughs) it's funny because the film to me it's like I think it's in Scorsese's oeuvre it's very overrated underrated because like it, it is like a really well-made, fun film to watch, but also like it's incredibly nihilistic. I mean, 
I, I, I'm going to confess that in the in the this is a, a huge spoiler, of course, if you haven't seen this movie. So if you haven't watched the party yet, maybe stick your fingers in your ears for a couple of minutes. Uh, the ending, like when, as soon as DiCaprio gets shot in the refrigerator in the the elevator, and you have like that orgy of death outside where it's just everybody shooting. Everybody each shooting. Other. Yeah. I laughed my ass off in the theater because it was so like like it was just so over the top, but it's kind of great. Like they, they like they were just going for it. Ashley will be talking about that kind of laughter at his own therapy session, <laughs> a, a date outside of here. Uh, because it, it was such yeah. a what the fuck moment and it just yeah. kept escalating like so over the top like it was just guns everywhere and <laughs> you know and I kept thinking like where it really uh, kind of fucked me up was I thought just because I think that he was the only one that I thought was to me redeemable I thought Leo would make it in that movie so it really threw me off uh, that he didn't oh totally and what's interesting too um, and this is kind of a little bit of a deep cut but that film also has a really interesting uh, film reference to uh, the third man. Oh. Because uh, if you remember like, the third man's ending, there's that, you know, it's another spoiler alert. And when they go to the, the real funeral of Harry Lyme at the end and the, the love interest is kind of walking away, you have Joseph Cotton's character who's like going after her, like being like, hey, you know, let me explain, give me a chance. And she just keeps walking by mutely. And when you watch the end of Departed, the therapist character is at DiCaprio's funeral, and she's walking away from it in the exact same kind of shot as it was in The Third Man. And this time you have Matt Damon in the Joseph Cotton role, being like, hey, baby, let me explain all that. And she just walks right past him. And it's interesting, because it, it, you feel like it's a very deliberate homage, but it reverses the roles, where this time the bad boy that she's mourning was the good guy. Right. And the good guy trying to convince her to stay behind, the Joseph Cotton guy, is actually the villain. Yeah. So a little bit of a, you know, my obligatory third man reference. Because nice, I, nice work. I do there. love that film. Yeah, what's not to love? Yeah. And also that that film also, I think also kind of counts to the theme of like kind of like the double agent, where it's like you know that's a story about a guy who's trying to meet his best friend, somebody who who everybody seems to love and respect, only to find out that he's actually this master criminal who's poisoning children and could not care less about it. Yeah, I also think that. Uh, you know, sometimes I find that we end up talking about Matt Damon a lot, and then I realize it's just because he's in a lot of movies. He really yeah, is. He's just out there. Um, he's like a good utility player. <laughs> he is. He he's like not offensive to me at all. You know, I don't think that he's he doesn't really amaze me, but he's he's fine. But in any case, I do think that he was kind of pretty good in uh, the Double Life movie, uh, Mr. Ripley, talented Mr. Right. Ripley. I think he did a really good job of uh, showing, like, that very good boy, uh, you know, putting on the image so that he can interact and get into the circle of these, uh, you know, these rich American kids on while they're vacationing in Italy and live that life and kind of have, have the life that they're having. And, um, you know, meanwhile, while he's, you know, taking money, I think one of the father of Jude Law pays him to go to Italy and make friends with him so that he can kind of coax Jude Law to come back home to America. Oh, yeah. And, and in there, he becomes his friend. And But really, he's a, just a, a sinister uh, imposter. Um, and he was good at showing that, I think. Oh, he's awesome. I, I think, if anything, I think people like Jude Law and that film kind of overshadowed him a little bit where we remember that performance. But, like, Matt Damon puts in a really good workman performance where he plays that character and he gives them enough nuance where you kind of understand why he's doing what he's doing. But you also kind of believe that why people would let him, the kind of the sketchy guy into their circle. Like, he's he's compelling. Like, he, he's, he's somebody that you could see yourself being friends with a guy like that to your detriment. Yeah, and he had some of those, you know, classic sociopathic traits. You know, he was able to study uh, people a little bit and kind of find out their weaknesses or needs, things that they needed. And he fed everyone around him uh, with what they wanted and kind of what they ended up wanting him to be. You know, but a mask oftentimes only lasts so long. And I think when it, be, you know, the cracks started coming, then everyone could see him. He didn't have any problem doing what he had to do at that point, which hmm. often involved murder. So, but you did, uh, you know, there was a I think there was a part in there where you could relate to him, especially if you were, if you're somebody that didn't come up with a lot and uh, in your life, you know, um, you can see how those that kind of lifestyle would be appealing. Uh, oh, totally. Well, 
And it kind of reminds me, um, I, I read this book a long time ago about con artists. And it, there's a chapter and it talks about this guy, uh, you know, Victor Lustig. This dude whose who's con used to be that he tried selling uh, investors the Eiffel Tower by saying that they're going to scrap it. So he's trying to sell them the scrap metal from the Eiffel Tower. And the reason I bring it up is it, it talks about that, that, that the principle of con artistry that he was all about was saying that the trick to a con is giving people what they want. You find out the thing that they, they want, that they know is probably unrealistic, and then you sell it to them, and you kind of let them seal their own fate. And I think somebody like, you know, like the Damon character in Ripley, there's, there's an aspect of that work, too. Like, he's giving people what they want. It's like the giant Nicholson, Departed. Like, you find the thing that people want from the world, from, from you, and you give it to them. Yeah. That's what everyone wants, right? I mean, ultimately, people want to uh, feel relevant, have their needs tended to. So it's kind of like uh, those people make you feel like, you know, they are your own special person. Uh, you know, they're there for you. They get you. Uh, you know, when they've kind of like psychologically wormed their way uh, into you, and then you know you're you've let down your guard. Oh, totally. Oh, you know, it's fine. I, I wasn't gonna mention this movie, but since you brought up Matt Damon, uh, <laughs> I, I think one of the more interesting examples of double agents, and, and I'm not particularly fond of this example, is actually uh, Julia Roberts in Ocean's Twelve. I didn't see Ocean's Twelve. Really? So, yeah, but please, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, I I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, to break it down, uh, I would preface this by saying that uh, uh, Ocean's Twelve is, is for a lot of people is like their least favorite Steven Soderbergh film. I actually love it. Like, it's my favorite Ocean's film because I think it's definitely like, the strangest one where it's like it takes place mostly in Europe and it's like a direct follow up to the first movie where after ripping off. Uh, Andy Garcia's character, Terry Benedict, for millions and millions of dollars, like he catches up with them and says, hey, you need to pay me back with interest or I'm going to kill all of you. So it's interesting because it adds consequences to their first film. But long story short, they go to Europe to try and make back like 90-some million dollars like in a week. And at one point, uh, they have to call in Julia Roberts' character, who's um, you know Danny Ocean's wife, to kind of help them out with a con. But the con is her pretending to be Julia Roberts in Rome. <laughs> because they're like, oh, you look like her, so you should be her. That's actually, no, that's it, it, it's just, pretty funny. It's a weird meta thing, too, because also while she's in Rome, you know, Julia Roberts playing Julia Roberts, uh, she meets Bruce Willis, played by Bruce Willis, who's like, oh, hey, how you doing? <laughs> he's, he's, so it's like meta to the max. <laughs> super meta. But it's weird when you watch it because you're like, does this mean that all the characters in Ocean's 12 are like analogs or real people? Like, like is do, does Danny Ocean and George Clooney exist in the same universe? <laughs> like, how, like, how does this work? It's just a weird, like, like, like I love that movie. That, that, like, the one sequence that always takes me out of it every time I watch it, where it's like, as soon as you start doing the, you know, the Julia plays Julia moments, I always just get kind of a little thrown by it. Yeah, I will definitely now take a look at it. And I'm not sure why that one got away from me, but uh, I honestly, I can't lie. I have a little bit of a hard time with Julia Roberts. Uh, I, I agree with you. I feel like it's a really one a note there. Uh, I, I don't know. I may, it give me a reason to, to not think that, but... I can't. Uh, you can't. Yeah. I can't. I, I, yeah, I'm, with, I'm, in the, I'm in the exact same boat with you. Like, I've never understood the appeal of her as an actress like like yeah like she has that one note and it's fine but like yeah i just even when i watch it you want to watch something like aaron brockovich which is like her like stretching my wings going for that oscar gold film you're like no nah, she's she's still she's still julia roberts yeah but now she's got a drinking habit and smoke cigarettes what do you do like, yeah i mean she doesn't do anything different you know what no. i mean her mannerisms don't change her vocal uh, you know, aspects don't change. Uh, her style is kind of, it, it always looks like her. Um, yeah, so maybe that's why. Sometimes maybe I'm just biased, and when I see her name, sometimes it, it, it scares me away. Not necessarily. I mean, a lot of actors do that. Like, you look at Cary Grant. I mean, Cary Grant is Cary Grant in pretty much every film he's in. And so it's like either you like the shtick or you don't. It's like Motorhead, right? Either you like Ace of Spades. Yeah, I so guess like I just don't like her. Don't. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. I'm not saying she's an anomaly and that, that no one else, you know, is ha it has their one note and, and repeatedly plays it over and over. I just don't like her note. I guess it does not resound with me. So. Right, and that's totally fair. I mean, we all, we, we all have those people, you know. Again, for me, it's like, and I know I, I've, uh, I have rang this bell on many occasions, but Polly Shore is an example of... <laughs> Like, he's got one note, and I fucking hate but it. But at least he's not, I, I don't it. know, is it better because he's not trying to do it? Is he, he, he can't possibly take himself seriously, right? Where I think that 
I watched his I watched his reality show, and which I admit that was a hate watch. That was hundred percent a hate watch. And yeah, I think the dude takes it a little seriously. Really? He has an entire episode on his show that's about him going to the therapist. He's getting too much sex. <laughs> do you think that's true? Like, do you think he just wanted people to think like that he's having a whole lot of sex, but he's not really having a whole lot? I really hate to admit what I'm about to admit, but I, I, I've read several oral histories of MTV in the '90s, and apparently oral. Polly Shore was apparently a big pussy magnet in the 90s. Apparently, ladies love the weasel. Which, again, ladies, I don't get it. Like, I respect the woman's right to choose, but the weasel? I mean, Oftentimes, fame will make that decision for somebody who's choosing. <laughs> I mean, it's just true. A lot of people want to glom onto fame, so they don't care who it is, if it's the weasel or... You know, it's funny you mentioned it because there is a woman married to Donald Trump. You know oh, what I mean? Like, ah, ah. well, we have a meme I saw the other day where somebody's like, if you want proof that fame will get you anything you want, look at Post Malone. Like, the dude's got ladies hanging off him. If you look at him, he looks like a meth cook working at a KFC. <laughs> like, you go to the back of any, any like, uh, restaurant in downtown Phoenix, and there's gonna be like, like, um, like a, a line cook looks just like him. If you're on meth right now and working at a KFC, we don't hate you. We're just saying. <laughs> he looks like he sells scalped I, I, ICP tickets. <laughs> like in a middle school playground. Like sketchy, sketchy dirtbag as fuck. Can you get lower than that? I, you uh, really can. Uh, scalped he... ICP tickets. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but he's rich and we're scrounging for money at trivia shows. So... Yeah. Um, so Passing the ball to you. Well, I'm taking it in a little bit of a different direction with two, two movies. Uh, you know, me, I'm like uh, always looking for the psychological uh, traits to anything. But I'm interested in movies where a person uh, is living double lives, not necessarily uh, in name, but uh, just in what they practice. Like, yeah. Uh, for instance, Brokeback Mountain, I think is a good example. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm just, uh, you know, a cowboy, but I'm also a gay cowboy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are obviously, due to the times and the culture and everything, reasons why, uh, you know, that was hard to reveal. Of course. Uh, and then I think we were talking about this for trivia, but uh, I'm a big fan of Half Nelson. Oh, yes. that I, I love that movie. I love that movie. Uh, you know, and I know, like I said, everyone loves Ryan Gosling. And what's not to love? He's great. He's a charming fellow. But I would like to see him make more Half Nelsons than I would La La Lands. And that's just me. Um, but in Half Nelson, he played a teacher who was also living a double life as a crack addict. Uh, and then one of his students uh, discovers that he has this addiction and then the story kind of covers their interactions with each other and uh, that's a I think that might be uh, a pretty difficult life to to oh, maintain yeah. I mean I'm not gonna say I know some and people have been in that exact position but I do <laughs> uh, and uh, you know I mean we all I guess we all have things we don't reveal for whatever reasons you know we keep under wraps or whatever but obviously that's a a big stigma attached to someone that's essentially a nine to five caregiver uh an educator of children so oh totally um i think that he he played that exceptionally well yeah because there's a lot of warmth and vulnerability in that character um i think he kind of there's a lot of drug addicts out there that are super lovable of course you know and smart and should be educating your kids you know what i mean and it's just uh you know, charged at that point in their life with this addiction that is consuming their right, their, yeah, their time. Well, it's interesting too because I think he, I think as an actor, Gosling kind of fell into the trap that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt fell into, where they kind of started off as kind of these young, kind of handsome, vulnerable actors, and at one point they was, hey, I could just be like a tough guy, like a sexy tough guy, and a lot of their roles kind of started angling in that direction, where it's like now it's like Gosling basically plays variations off like his like um. Crazy Stupid Love or like uh, La La Land where these guys were kind of these hip, like yeah. cold people. I'm a little charming. I might like a little fun, jazzy music and uh, I'm a little I'm bit of a handsome. Yeah. yeah. Which, but, but Athos is interesting because he's not that person. Like in that film, like he is like an earnest, like school teacher. Like you believe he wants to help people and like they don't sugarcoat the fact that he's kind of a train wreck. 
Yeah. But not in a way that's appealing. Like, not in a way being like, oh, I can fix you, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> right. Like, more like, dude, I'm not leaving you alone at home with my big stereo TV. It's me or the crack pipe. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you will not win. In no. That. No, you will not. Um, yeah. And, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, too. You're right. And uh, I don't know where that's going to go, where things are going to go with him. You know, he has, I think, I think he's really solid. But this is just an aside. But I think he's, he still does go all over the place a little bit. Yeah. And sometimes doesn't make the best decisions, but... Yeah, no, that, definitely, definitely. I mean, again, you know, he, he does stuff like Brick, which is these fantastic movies. I love Brick. Oh, it's such a good movie. Again, another question from this week's trivia. Which, by the yeah. way, by the way, you almost, made me, you almost made me, like, spit my drink across the table. <laughs> right? Because, folks, I'll explain. Like, um, that was a, a multiple-choice question Amy came up with. Uh, asking what was the name of the drug lord from Brick? You know, long story short, it's the pin. But one of the multiple suggestions that she had in there was a name, and I quote, the name was Frisco Danger, <laughs> which I almost shit my pants. Like it would, like I, I couldn't get the word. I, I, I had to stop and breathe before I said it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, what kind of fucking name is Frisco that's Danger? That's all. I, if I can do that, like once a month while we're working on this podcast or trivia, then that's all I need. Um, yeah, that's why I get paid the big bucks for writing. So <laughs> like fucking I, funny. Like the disappointment I felt that there wasn't a zero from sixty joke in there was completely <laughs> negated by Frisco Danger. I know, and I had one, but I, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm falling short on my zero to sixty. Joke. Uh, it's fine. But Frisco Danger was just like that is like that's like Carlos Danger levels of like hilariously dumb bad names. Um, all right, back at ya. Okay, well, since we're on the subject of drug addicts, uh, one of my favorite films, which is an adaptation of a book on one of my favorite offers, is A Scanner Darkly. Oh, yeah. Which is, uh, you know, people like to beg on Keanu Reeves for being an act for a bad actor, which I, I disagree with. I, I think, going to your Julia Roberts point, he's somebody who's got a note. He's got a narrow range, but it's a good range. And I think Scanner Darkly is like the perfect use of him. Because he's blunt. Cause in that film, he's paranoid. He's blunted out. He's drugged out. He's confused. And it, stoned confused is basically the best version of Keanu. It is. River's Edge, Keanu. Uh, Scanner Darkly, Keanu. Those, Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted. Those, to me, are better Keanus than, like, action Keanu. Maybe Point Break, because he got to play a little both. A little of both. You know what I mean? He was kind of... Leading a double life in yeah. that movie. There, there you go. Well, in the Matrix, point break, he plays yeah. conf- he's very confused in that first one. <laughs> As we all were the first time we watched it. <laughs> and he's good at, at that. Uh, I don't buy him sometimes in the harder-edged roles. But you're right. He is, he is great in that. And he has maybe two notes and, you know, stoned in, confused. Absolutely. Um, and he does that well. And there's also... Uh, something about him to me that is a little more uh, relatable and down to earth and appealing than there is like a Julia Roberts. To me, she is not, I don't know, she kind of had that early tag of like an America's sweetheart type of person, but I never felt like that. I felt like she's a little uh, stuffy. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Whereas with Keanu, it's like, I know guys at the record store who are basically Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Like you, you could you could kick over like any bar in town. You meet somebody who's got a little bit of that energy going, and it's, it's relatable. I feel like she's the kind of person that wants to tell you. And I had a, an annoying boss like this, who just doesn't do whatever they're doing, but wants to tell you like, I'm one of those kind of girls that will like, uh, you know, I'll I can play poker with the guys <laughs> and smoke a cigar, or whatever. Which like, I I feel like she would delineate that kind of. Uh, gender uh yeah, position totally. and uh in a real annoying way you know and I, I don't know i just don't like her we might just rename this episode fuck julia roberts because i i think that it's coming out more often than the actual theme i'm starting to get angry the more i think about her like i just don't like you it's okay like, i i think we found that that julia roberts is your michael bay <laughs> And, and we all have to have something to hate so that's respectable for those who don't know ashley does not care for michael bay not even a little bit but go back to Scanner Darkly. What 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 really what I love about that movie and, and the book it's based off is that central conflict of a guy who's so disassociated from reality because of the drugs he's had to take that you know he's a government agent who doesn't realize for most of the story that he's spying on himself. That he's been that he he's his job is to report on his own activities. 
Right. Yeah. And that sets up a whole, like, you know, you as the viewer, you know, it, it gets you like in a twist of like how to, you know, in those roles, it, invariably you end up caring about that initial person. Uh, and then you want to sort of see them twist back out of, you know, what, what they've gone into. And it, it you know, it's, I think it's real easy to get attached to a character like that. Oh, totally. Uh, it sort of reminds me too of, is it Narc with Jason Patrick? Don't think I saw that one. Yeah, where it's sort of this a similar type of uh, theme, and I have to look into it because it's been years since I've seen it. But who, by the way, Jason Patrick is, of course, the uh, substitute Keanu Reeves, since uh, <laughs> Speed Two. Oh yeah, Speed Two. So if you can't get Keanu, you know, get yourself a Jason Patrick. Yeah, uh, Sandra Bullock, however, was from Speed. She, I think, she fit that role that people wanted Julia Roberts to fill more than yes. Julia Roberts does and did. Well, yeah, like a, like a miscongeniality. Like I would never buy a Julia Roberts in that role, because no. she doesn't have that like, like Sandra Bullock sincerity. Ha- it's a sincerity, I right? Think. The down there's a down the earth of Sandra Bullock where you can believe, you can imagine that Sandra Bullock has probably farted in her life and laughed about it. <laughs> With Julia Roberts, I just imagine abject horror. Like anytime she squeaks one out, it's always like, <gasps> I need to kill everybody in the room who heard that. But right in now. turn, she would tell you before she ever did anything like that how awesome she is and how she would do anything and she's you know just one of those people you know those people that are like i'm so crazy i'll do anything whatever i feel like she that would be her but then when something like that would happen she wouldn't be cool about it because she's not cool to begin with no absolutely what else well and also um if you want to talk if you want to talk about the idea of like double identities and film i mean there's always the granddaddy of cinema i mean alfred hitchcock most of his films are obsessed with this idea of like the wrong man the accused figure people who aren't what they seem or people who had to be something other than themselves is to survive yeah this is true i mean like look at vertigo i mean like it's just um which you know again again i some people I know disagree with the idea that because I know the, if it was the BFI a few years back declared that it was like the it, it, they put a number one their uh, the hundred best films of all time list. I know some people think it's overrated. I I still don't. I still think Vertigo is a beautiful, strange, haunting movie. Oh, I think it's great. I I, I tend to think that people might think it's uh, overrated just because it's so out there and sometimes things that have been overplayed or well-known sometimes get that tag but uh that's a little unfair i think because it's an it's a good movie it's an exceptional movie plus i mean poor kim novak i mean having having to basically play one person being two different people and basically being trapped in that role because of jimmy stewart's obsessiveness like like it's when you look at the gender dynamics and like the psychology of that film from from a modern standpoint it's such a wonderfully fucked up and weird movie And also strangely relatable, too, because like how often in our own relationships do we look at people we're with like in the lens of the people we used to be with? I mean, and not as badly as Jimmy Stewart does, because he's openly like, you know, molding Judy into being Madeline again. Like he's, you know, he's changing her hair color and her clothes, which is clearly an, obs- an, you know, an insane thing to do. But also in real life, like how oftentimes when we meet new people, friends, um, you know, lovers or even creative collaborators, how often do we try to think of them? through the lens of our own past experience and try to try to focus on the things that we relate to, not the new things. Hmm. I'm kind of wondering how you mean that. Like, do you mean, do we try to make a connection with them based on uh, previous situations that we've been in or? I think sometimes I I, I don't, again, I'm not suggesting we mold them because that's that's terrible. Or do you think it's that we set up expectations about them based on them? Yes, I think that's that's a big thing. I I think that's, I think in any kind of relationship, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles to get over is letting go of your expectations of not comparing the new thing to the old thing. Cause it's human nature. Like we know we compare our past experiences, what we're dealing with now. You know, like if you go to a restaurant and you order a, a filet mignon, you're going to compare that mignon to every other mignon you've ever had on some level. Like it's just what you do. And I think in any relationships, platonic, romantic, and otherwise, there's an aspect of going, having to cut that part of your brain off that, that compares it to the past and be like, well, I had I, I had this thing before. Why isn't this like that? Like, because it's not it's not the same thing. But do you think that we're able to do that? Like, do you think a hundred percent people are able to do that? A hundred percent, probably not. But I I think. But you think it's we, healthier? I think it's healthier for us to know that and to to realize that we're doing that and to 
and to you know keep control of it as much as we can because otherwise you know again jimmy stewart's like the extreme version of that like he's the he's like the extreme like uh cautionary tale of what happens when you don't right. when you let that take over your life yeah that's a kind of a that's a great way to look at that movie um yeah, I've just been having a couple of conversations with other people that came up randomly in the last week uh, about expectations. So that's kind of relevant to me, just having that, this conversation. But uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's hard to to. I mean, I think if you if that is something that you can acknowledge and transcend, then you probably are moving in the right direction with how you interact with people but i think it's one of the more difficult things in life to oh, totally to surpass i do absolutely and also sorry jimmy stewart this is kind of an, an, a total aside but my favorite alfred hitchcock film is rear window and part of the reason why i love that film so much is that the subplot of jimmy stewart being like no no i, I don't want to be with you grace kelly is like the funniest storyline <laughs> in film history to me because I'm like, dude, as a cis heterosexual male, if, if, if Grace Kelly showed up tomorrow and be like, hey, you want to be in a relationship? I'm like, yes! <laughs> yes, you can come with me. The two, let's go on a safari somewhere, whatever. I don't care. Go like, awesome. So when you watch that film and Jimmy Stewart's like, well, I like my freedom and being a photographer. It's just like, dude, shut the fuck up. All right? You are old ass Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly's crazy about you. Like, Take the W on this, buddy. Like, 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 take the win. Yeah, just do it. It's what you really want. That's funny. <laughs> but uh, Boston subject got double films. Um, I also one of my other favorite Hitchcock films is uh, Shadow of a Doubt. Oh yeah! Wow, I haven't seen that forever. Oh, so good. Because uh, you know Joseph Cotton from uh, Finn Man and Citizen Kane's in it, and you know, and, and Joseph Cotton. It, has kind of always made a career out of playing kind of these fundamentally decent characters. But in that film, like, he plays the serial killer, basically. He plays a guy who's a con man who goes around murdering women and stealing from them. And it's a fascinating film to watch because, you know, he comes back home to visit his family and kind of lay low from the law. And it's an interesting contradiction you see at work where everybody, like, people love him because, oh, he's yeah, Uncle he's Charlie. Super charming. Super yeah. charming. Like, he's got a really close relationship with his niece who, like, yeah. I think she's named Charlie, too, in that film. Yeah, she kind of, uh, she's really one of the first people to kind of see the cracks, to, to yeah. see the cracks on him. Totally. It's interesting, too, because it's kind of almost like, uh, like the Finn Man situation, where it's like, she knows she has to turn Charlie in because he's evil, but she also loves Charlie and doesn't want to do it. Just how, like, in the Finn Man, Joseph Cotton knows he has got to turn in Orson Welles, but he doesn't want to because they're so close. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've all... I don't know if, you know, that's a that's a pretty extreme <laughs> scenario, but uh, it does make you wonder. Like, it's definitely one of those, not fun, but interesting things to ponder. Like, how, what would you do, you know? Right. Well, it's also, like, you know, if you look at like, Me Too, for example, like, I think a lot of us have that experience now where we, we probably know somebody that we're either close to or an acquaintance where it's like, we know they've done fucked up or questionable things in the past. And, like, do we forgive them? Do we give them uh, room in our lives or do we cut them off? Right. Why do some people get a pass? Why do others not get a pass? What, you know, what does that say about us that we're, we're willing to uh, tolerate? Obviously, again, very different circumstances from this movie. Of but, course. Yeah. But it is also a way for us to look at, you know, evil doesn't just have to be, oh, you know, you strangle people and you pretend not to. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, like the, those kind of like darker like interactions you know, they, they come on a much more human level, too, where it's like, yeah, you know, your your version of Uncle Charlie in Shadow of a Doubt could just be that person you know in the music scene who's had some really troubling rumors following them around. Right. And that's certainly, unfortunately, happening. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of things going on. We'll, we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll, we, we kind of have visited that a little bit on some episodes but oh yes um uh, the lost episode (laughs) we actually recorded um an episode it's like our second episode that was a weinstein like me too episode entirely focused on that and we had to bin it almost immediately (laughs) because like we were talking about like louis ck in it about how like you know all these alleged rumors following him around and literally Two days after we finished recording that episode, uh, that New York Times article dropped. And we're like, okay. Like, <laughs> yeah, we weren't super timely. Um, and, you know, it was, yeah, I think some other people we talked about in it, like the different things got dropped, charges. And, oh, yeah. It got, it got, yeah. Date, that, that article, like, that, that, that whole episode dated itself. It's an oblivion in like 48 hours. 
Yeah. Ah, the, the perils <laughs> of timeliness. And believe, as two uh, freelance journalists, believe me, we're all too aware of how much of a bitch timeliness can be. You've got you've to gotta, uh, get on top of these things. That's what she said. <laughs> That's what she always says. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, well, you know, I think it's about high time we talk about uh, the big guy. Dun, dun, dun. Good old Mr. David Lynch. Oh. Because if anybody, aside from, aside from Hitchcock, if anybody has an obsession with uh, multiplicity <laughs> and people being people other than who they are, I mean, you know, again, this is, this is kind of been Lynch's yeah. bread and butter for years. Yeah, where, where, where to start? Well, we could start by the film that, uh, you know, spoiler alert, that gave us our namesake, Good Old Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive, yeah. I was waiting for somebody to ever say something about that, but so far they haven't. Uh, I think they just think the picture is really cute. So, well, it is, it is a cute little picture. I mean, you know, anybody who loves Louis driven by dr- driven drawn by Ashley, <laughs> guilty as charged. <laughs> Too many years watching Louis Tunes cartoons of boxing kangaroos. Yeah, I prefer to watch live videos of fighting kangaroos, but that's just me. <laughs> and that's actually not a joke. I. That's actually how he came up with the name. Yeah, I and uh, the movie. Yeah, um, I do enjoy watching street fighting kangaroos. I don't know what why, but uh, yeah, or when they're just sort of terrorizing humans too. But I really like the buff, like uh, yeah, hard living <laughs> kangaroos. Yeah, it's like the, 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 there's like nature is equivalent of the guy at the bar wants to pick a fight with you. <laughs> yeah, they're the. The bro. Like you're just the standing tall world. Street. <laughs> so you want to step to me, bro? I'll stand on my tail. I got yeah. Joey's in my pouch bigger than you. Come on. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Mulholland Drive. All right, Mulholland Drive. Uh, yeah, it's... I mean, I love... I'm extremely biased. Like, I, I love all of Lynch's We films. have to go on a whole... I think we'll have to do a whole, a whole episode, Lynch easily. episode. Yeah. See, it comes up in everything because there's no way that he can. And... Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I think you look at, like, you know, if you look at Twin Peaks, um, especially the last season, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire. I mean, those are all, you know, films slash shows in which, you know, people... Alter, change their identities. They become different people, either because they're pretending to be somebody else or because a sort of supernatural inversion happens that makes them into someone right. else. Yeah. And Mulholland Drive is just... <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's one of those films, like, every time I watch it, like, I see something new in it. Um, because, you know, you're, you're watching a film that could, you know, depending on the interpretation you want to go with, it could be somebody's dying dream or it could be a parallel universe. I mean, you're watching basically a, a, a fantasy life play out in the first half, where it's like, you know, you have you know Betty and Rita, everything goes right for them. Like, you know, they get the acting parts they want. The assassins that are trying to kill Rita are just colossal fuck ups who can't get their shit together. And you see the other half of the story in which everything falls apart, and there's death and sadness and just jealousy and sorrow. And it, it just, and it's interesting to think like, you know, when you watch that film. You know what? What's the real person? Are they both real? Like, is Betty and Rita the act, or are they the real person? And is the other thing the fantasy? That's kind of what he. That's the magic of Lynch, right? You know what I mean? It's kind of to twist up all of these things and kind of leave you, uh, you know, it coming in one side and going out the other. Not really, you know, it's like going through a tornado in the middle, and then really having to think about where you ended up and why oh, and yeah. how and sometimes you don't ever resolve it you know 100% like you said you can watch it again it's nuances every time uh, and that's yeah absolutely and also uh, if you want any evidence that the Emmys are bullshit uh, it's a fact that Kyle McLaughlin did not get any nominations for Twin Peaks this year oh which is insane because if you know if you watch that last season he plays like about five different characters in that show that are all distinct and they're all unique. Yeah. And it's it's really, I mean, if I think when we, when we look back at this decade, it's going to be one of the defining performances, I think, from a male actor's perspective. Yeah. Like, but his work in there is a career best. Did you think that the Emmys weren't bullshit? I mean, do, I you, mean, still, they, do you still have some hope for t- mainstream awards? Uh, I mean, I, always, I guess I always have a little bit of hope that 
Well, I do too. I mean, I, I think a lot of, I mean, like look at the Academy Awards. Of course, it's been bullshit for years. Like Kurosawa never won an award. I mean, the list of artists who didn't get acknowledged in their lifetime is staggering. But occasionally they get it right. Like when Moonlight won that one year, like their films that do get their acknowledgement they deserve. When they got it right, when they finally read the, right, right. the correct winning title. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they, 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 even they fucked that up. Yeah. But at least they still got the right, so they picked the right the film ultimately. Yeah. But the Emmys, it's like, yeah, I, I, you don't expect them necessarily to get it right. But also from the point of view of the creators, it's like if they win awards, like it helps them with funding. It helps them get other movies. So that, that, that's why I always hold that hope. Like, yeah, it'd be great if Twin Peaks won awards. It'd be great if McLaughlin won oh, awards. Oh, yeah, it would be Because it would help great. them do other projects. I just don't put a lot – I don't put a lot of stock into it because I think it's 90%, you know uh, – Blockbuster, oh, totally. popularity contest kind of shit. Well, now at the Oscars, now they're even adding that. Like you heard about that, right? That they're adding the a popular movie. Uh, a, I'm like, isn't that already called the Best Picture Award? I mean, it's rare. I know you know, a Moonlight gets in there and, and and things like that from time to time, but it also tends to. It just feels like it, it's like most popular like the most popular award is the fact that you made a bunch of money at the box yeah, office yeah that's the money award right that's basically what it is they like, should just call it the big blockbuster award it totally should like be but I guess calling it the most popular yeah it's just it's just it's dumb it's yeah. so stupid especially because they, they I mean they expanded the best picture category years ago to like up to 10 nominees for this very reason because they're like okay well we didn't nominate Dark Knight because now that fanboy is going crazy we need to throw them a bone so they expanded the categories to give like popular films a nominee nominations now. So why create this extra award? What's the point? I think they trimmed it. I think that they it went up to ten movies, but it didn't stay like that. Oh, so they trimmed it. So yeah, okay. I that think they sense. trimmed it back down because, and I think it was merely because attention span. Like I think they were just like, no one, this is too much. These are too many movies. So again, once again, catering to the idea that no one wants to hear too much information, read too much information, listen to someone read an extra long list of movies, they just they just tidied it up. Which, you know, to be honest, I, I always get fascinated by that philosophy because, like, is it true? It doesn't seem to be. It's like the whole pivot the video thing you see in journalism online where it's like, in my experience, people prefer to read online. Like, I don't know a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'd rather watch a video of that. Like, I'd rather watch a video of a guy talking about a record for five minutes and reading an article in two minutes. Like, Well, I think it, that... yeah, I think it depends on who you're talking about because kids, little kids, I think are, you know, that video is their life. Yeah. Uh, so for them, but people who are reading articles uh, and long-form pieces online, I think are fine to do so. I don't ever... Uh, I'm not one to cut to the to a video. Oh or, hell no! You know, Never. if I'm listening to a podcast, that's a whole different thing. Totally. That's the experience that I'm getting. But um, I don't know. So I think somewhere that's been determined that that's what the trend is. So that's what everyone should stick with. So we don't want right. well, to. We'll, we will lose people. We will lose an audience. That's what it comes down to all the time. We'll lose an audience if we force them to stay too long. But, but yeah, with the Oscars, I mean, how much of a difference does it make? I mean, I, I think if if you told somebody, hey, look, here's a three-hour award ceremony, you'd be like, whoa, no thank you. But like, oh, it's two and a half hours. Are you going to be like, sure, I'll watch that. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's an award show. By their very nature, they're kind of boring. They're like, if you're somebody who likes watching the Oscars, you're going to watch the Oscars if it's two or four hours because you like watching the Oscars. If you don't already, you're just not going to. I mean, look at the MTV Video Music Awards this year. They had like the lowest ratings they've ever had on that show. It's a terrible show. Well, it's, all, it's also a terrible show. I watched last year and I was I couldn't get through it. It was insane. I tried watching this year and the Madonna Aretha Franklin tribute was like to say it's nails on chalkboard would, would do a disservice to nails on chalkboard. Yeah, it was she really didn't bad. Perform, did she? No, but she just. It was just a very long speech, which was basically all about how Aretha Franklin influenced her. So it was wasn't basically really a, about her. It was about Madonna. It was Madonna talking about Madonna. It was just, it was like, it, like you watch that and you go, you guys have a whole weekend to think of a tribute to this person, and this is the best you could do, really. I mean, how you couldn't find like maybe like a, like a black recording artist. You couldn't get like a, a you know like, like a Beyonce or a Jennifer Hudson or somebody who actually like really draws from the tradition of Reba Franklin's music to give her a, a fitting tribute on stage. You had to basically pick somebody who's basically been culturally irrelevant for like a decade to go on stage and blather about her influence. Like it's 
culturally irrelevant, but uh, you know she has that still that Madonna cachet, and then well, also totally. uh, that's just about people who want to tune in and see Madonna. It's not about. Then again, it doesn't become about Aretha and her legacy. It becomes about like we'll get Madonna on here, and then everyone wants to see Madonna. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. And I, 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 yeah, I feel it feels a little bit like you know, get off my lawn, me bitching about that in the first place. But <laughs> what can you do? Get off Ashley's lawn. Uh, I was trying to think of some. If uh, I know that there um, are many more movies like this that uh, I had on the tip of my mind, I'm trying to. Well, I think another one that also does come to mind. Did you ever see Drug War by Johnny Toe? No. It was like I think it was this Hong Kong film made a few years back. It was actually really, really good because um, it's totally one of those kind of departed style films where the main character is this guy who works for a, a, a drug family. He gets pinched by the cops early on, and part of the twist of the story is that in the city that that takes place in, they have extremely uh, harsh penalties for drug drug selling. Like like it's basically the, the electric chair almost immediately. Like you get injected, like like you basically get caught with selling drugs, they're gonna kill you. And the police are like, hey man, if you help us turn evidence and like indict the rest of this cartel, we'll let you go. So the whole film is him like infiltrating his old group and to try and turn them. But what makes the film so interesting? Um, is that it has none of that respect among thieves and cops things. Like we were talking about earlier, John Woo. Like, the cops hate this guy. They don't trust him. They treat him like dirt the whole movie. Which is an interesting conflict of the film, is you wondering the whole time, like, is this guy cooperating with the cops, or is he waiting for an opportunity to fuck them? Or like like who's where's his loyalties lie? Does like is he trying to save his own skin? Is he loyal to his drug family? Does he actually feel anything for the cops? And the whole film, the whole movie, it plays those expectations. Like it makes you wonder where it's going to go the whole time. Do they have do his um, drug mates? Do they have an idea that he's? I don't want to spoil it, but I don't think they like, like for most of the film you get the impression they don't like they trust him. So it, it really becomes more or less a question of, like, because the main character, the actor, he really underplays the part beautifully. Like, he's a cipher for most of the movie. So you really don't know what his motivation is until, like, the very end. But anyway, I guess what I'm saying is that if you haven't watched Drug War, you should watch Drug War. It it's really, really good. good. It's really well done. And it's a very, very bleak, it's a very bleak, stark, like, it's kind of like if Michael Mann directed The Departed. It's stylish but cold. It's really good. Hmm. That sounds good. Right. We're down to our last seven minutes. Woohoo! Seven minutes of fun. Seven minutes of fun, fun. Well, you know what? Why don't we veer off topic for a second and just kind of go, what are you into right now? Like, what did you see recently that was really good? Uh, I saw Black Klansman. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, we saw Black <laughs> yes, Klansman. Yes, we saw Black Klansman. Uh, and I thought it was, uh, speaking of, I guess, yeah, speaking of double. <laughs> You're right. It's actually, it's, why didn't we figure this earlier? Yeah, we, we, did, we, not, we did not we just are not, plan we that. We are not very yeah. smart people. It seems like that was like a, a little uh, fake lead-in to talk about Black Klansman, but no, it this was, was not, this totally was organic, totally organic. Uh, I thought it was great. I, I really did. Um, I thought the acting was top-notch. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a tough double life to, to lead oh, right course. there. Um, I don't think it was a perfect movie, but I, I think it was it was pretty powerful. Oh, I agree. Um, I would say, you know, the ending at first threw me for a little bit. Um, without giving too much away, it, it, it's a film... That really, and again, Lee, Spike Lee's not known for salty anyway, but it's a film that really hammers home the connection between that time period and the modern era. Like, you get lots of references to Trump's America throughout Black Klansman. And the ending makes that very explicit by, by showing us footage of Charlottesville and, uh, you know, Hever Hare and all that. And when I, I know what we talked about this very briefly. When we walked out, like, I, I wasn't a fan of that. But the more I look back on it, I do think I agree with it now. And I, and I like that decision at the end. But I remember the first time when I first watched in the theaters, it did throw me a little bit. Yeah. Well, it takes you out of what you just saw. You know what I mean? Just even stylistically, you know, you've got this movie that's shot a little grainy and, you know, you got the guys in the, you know, it's got that more 70s-ish look yeah. and feel. Uh, and then, you you know, all, you're immediately thrust into a modern news clipping. Uh, so, you know... <clears throat> You get a little uh, dissonance there for a second, just I think in the style. Uh, but then you, you know, as you slowly just come back together, you're like, you know, it's it's fucking tragic how 
you know, the same message, uh, you know, is still relevant. And oh, totally, you know, and then it kind of then you just kind of then you're just in like a, you're just in a stunned state. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's interesting, too, because the film has um, it bookends or breaks some reality because like you have that at the end. But the beginning, you know, you have that long like clip from uh, Gone with the Wind and the Alec Baldwin sequence where like he's recording that film and whichever comes up again like we never we never touch back with that character at that moment but it's, it's just that... like a timeline exactly it's a historic timeline we get then and then now at the end we get now yeah a historic timeline of tragic fucking racism uh, and so you know when you just <laughs> what you know when you take it for that it's just I don't know. It's it's almost even hard to attach an emotion to it, even though the, there's so many emotions, because it's just shocking and unbelievable that it's to see how unevolved things are in in that way, in totally. so many ways. You know, like a lot, I know people love to think we've come a long way, baby, and all that kind of stuff, but that this is we really ridiculous. Haven't. Yeah. Well, it also lends an interesting gut punch too, because the way the film ends right before it, like it's almost like a, like a Hollywood ending, because you know we have the main character and, and and all of his cop buddies, like they entrap the one racist cop that you're supposed to hate throughout the film in a way that almost feels too unrealistic, like right. how they're all so happy to pinch this guy. So to have it go from that moment to the very end, where it's like you see nothing has really changed and things may actually be not worse, but you know the potential of getting worse today. Like, like it, it does give it more of an impact. Yeah. It's like, well, we've, we, we, we can relish our small victories here and there, but look, we're still facing a really, you know, horrific big picture, big running big picture. Oh, totally. Um, so in that, yeah, it's, I thought it was very well done. I mean, Topher Grace is, um, <laughs> as David Duke was really phenomenal casting. <laughs> like if you need like an evil racist twerp, like he does play that role beautifully. Yeah, I thought everybody did a pretty good job. Oh, yeah, no, it was a really sterling cast. I mean, like uh, John David Washington, who it, it wasn't until halfway in the film, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's Denzel Washington's son. <laughs> yeah. Because his voice is so familiar. I'm like, where have I heard this before? This guy sounds so familiar. I actually kind of enjoyed him a little better than Denzel sometimes. And I like Denzel, but I think sometimes there's a character of Denzel that Denzel plays uh, with a little bit of this Denzel swagger. Uh, yes. That sort of defeats the characters that he's trying to be sometimes where I think he thinks it's a boost, but we could talk about that in a yeah. different episode. Well, it kind of comes back to via stuff we were talking about Gosling earlier. It's a vulnerability issue where Denzel is so good at playing like the cool, yeah. c- cool kind of masculine tough guy that he's not very good at showing any weakness. Like Inside Man. Did you ever see? Oh, yeah, I love yeah. Inside Man. He's so cocky. Uh, and then you, you sort of see that in a, in a lot of roles. But I was waiting in that just to see one, I like just a little crack in that character. That's why I was so excited for Inside Man 2, which supposedly is never going to happen now. But uh, <laughs> it was for years, like in the works. Um, I just wanted to see if he could, you know, his character would just crack just a little yeah yeah exactly you want to see him ruffled to get, get a touch and the thing about, about um, John David in that movie is like in Black Landsman you know he is a, 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 a swaggering confident guy but you see those moments of like doubt and self-reflection yeah. and weakness yeah. and it makes him a much more compelling protagonist because of it yeah I agree same with Adam Driver too oh yeah yeah, yeah the, the, that central pairing is great because they're both dealing with that conflict of having to live two lives, of, of having to be like, you know, I want to be part of this system, but at the same time, I'm also part of a marginalized class that's always going to be on the outs. Yeah. And kind of to reconcile those two yeah. stances is really yeah, interesting. Yeah, really have to go through that internal uh, facing of that, you know, like what the rest of your life might look like. Oh, totally. All righty then, folks. Well, to give us a quick wrap up here, remember like what Amy was saying earlier, if you want to find out more about what we're doing or to hear our past episodes you can find us online through facebook twitter um was it stitcher i think stitcher Bandcamp, spotify itunes maybe not spotify <laughs> basically itunes yeah basically you put it a prize fighting kangaroo in the old google machine and we should pop up here and there yeah you'll see us and then you'll also get to also link to great videos of kangaroos fighting sometimes on an australian residential <laughs> street which is the best which, honestly, as much as we love our podcast, you should probably watch those first. Yeah. Like, you got to prioritize, folks. And then you can cut ours is like a come down, yeah. 
And uh, yeah, and uh, so again, if you do like, uh, if you live in Arizona and you want to see us in person, check out our trivia show, Trivia Dome, every last Tuesday of the month at Valley Bar. Yeah, and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pfkphx and twitter.com slash pfkphx and be our friend because uh, we need more friends. Everybody needs more That's friends. Right. Well, for Parsing Kangaroo, I'm Ashley. Not Mamie. Peace. Is the best time.